And we are back on the big wake-up call, and time for my next guest. He is a New York Times number one best-selling author. Publishers Weekly called him Storyteller of the Gods. His brand new book is Daughter of the Deep. It is now available wherever books are sold, and it is great to welcome back to the show Rick Riordan. Good morning. Great to be here. It is great to talk to you again, Rick. With your second appearance, you're just one away from our three timers club, and then you get a certificate of achievement and a, a gift card. Excellent, the trifecta. <laughs> so, tell us about um, the brand new book, Daughter of the Deep, and then, of course, you've written about uh, gods of the sea. This time, looks like we're dealing with some mortals who who have some uh, relationship with the sea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I love the ocean, as anybody who's read Percy Jackson knows. He was the son of the sea god. But this is a different kind of book. Daughter of the Deep is my first foray into science fiction. It's uh, kind of a tribute to Jules Verne, who wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, This the story of Captain Nemo and his ship, The Nautilus. And in this book, it's about a descendant of his, Anna Dakar, who finds out she is the only one who can operate the advanced technology that Captain Nemo left behind. 200 years ago, which is still more cutting-edge than anything modern navies have. And she's got to get up to speed real fast because her life is on the line. Now, isn't that something, some of the uh, technology that was envisioned hundreds of years ago? We've surpassed a ton of it, but yet some we're still kind of aiming for. Like, I am still, where is my flying car I was promised in the Tom and Jerry cartoons? It's still not here. I know, exactly. Our jetpacks, our flying cars. What's up with that? I just remember the cartoons I watched growing up, you know, in the 80s. and like, okay, here is going to be the future in the year 2000. And I'm like, wow, I want that vision of the future. That, that was way more exciting. Oh, totally. And Jules Verne is ahead of us in a lot of ways. In The Mysterious Island, for instance, he describes drawing power from hydrogen from the ocean, which is basically cold fusion, yeah. which is something we're still trying to figure out. So where did your love of the sea, where did that relationship come from that, that's been so, so prominent in, uh, in much of your work? It is kind of strange. I was born in landlocked San Antonio, uh, so I'm not sure. But I, I think wherever we live, the ocean is such a source of mystery and power and intrigue. I mean, it is 75% of the planet, and 80% of the deep ocean is still unexplored and unvisited. So really, who knows what's down there? It's a, it's a playground for the imagination. Uh, it's scary. It's intriguing. 75% of the life on Earth is under the ocean. So it just seemed like a natural place to explore. And um, the new story with Captain Nemo's descendant gave me a great opportunity to do that. Like, just as we're talking, it gave me a great idea. I don't know if anyone has based a series in in the Great Lakes, but having such access to Lake Michigan here, maybe that is something Mm. to explore, unless you steal it away from me and you will do it much better. (laughs) I'll leave that one to you, Ryan, but I would love to read it. Sounds like a great idea. Now, writing uh, about the sea, have you done any James Cameron, Jacques Cousteau type of uh, exploring? Well, this is something that I have been researching for over a decade, for Daughter of the Deep. I did become certified in scuba diving. I have now dived in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, even in Iceland. Um, so I've done a lot of underwater exploration of my own. 
Uh, I did a lot of reading up on submarines. I've never had the pleasure of actually going uh, under the ocean. But one of the people who uh, did read the book for me and give me advice was Robert Ballard, the um, probably the most uh, eminent uh, explorer of the, of the underwater world and the discoverer of the Titanic. So uh, I, I had some pretty good um, people behind me helping me out. Doing the diving and then exploring then, having that tangible connection with the sea that's important to you does that inform any of your writing does that that give you a little more charge of excitement when you're when you're talking about it oh completely when i'm doing underwater battle scenes or the exploration that the characters have to do in daughter of the deep i'm able to imagine what they're going through the challenges simply of moving underwater with all that equipment is something i'm familiar with now and the beauty of the sea, uh, it's really just a different world. It's just, uh, the way the light works, the way sound works. Everything about it is different. So I'm very glad that I had the firsthand experience before I tried to write about it. And yes, it's so much, and it's very specific. As you mentioned, the sound and the light and the atmosphere. So how do you take something so mysterious yet visceral, and how do you create that into a visual representation in, uh, in your novel? Well, fortunately for me, I'm a visual thinker. I, I write that way. I've been told that, that I write cinematically. It's, it's like watching a movie in your head. Oh, sure. And I think that's accurate. So it's kind of my, um, my setting, my, my default setting anyway. Um, but simply trying to relate what the characters are seeing, uh, I found that came pretty easily to me. Um, it's, it's just being aware of how how much the, the environment changes uh, as you go deeper into the water, what you can see and what you can't see, and what you have to intuit. It's a, it's a fascinating place, but the deep ocean is also really kind of scary. But isn't it nice writing in uh, science fiction? You don't have to be 100% accurate and no one has, is going to call you up and, uh, you know, nitpick? <laughs> well, you know, the, that's, that's true. I, I try to take liberties um, with discretion, though, so that they're not so wild that um, somebody will say, wait a minute, that could never happen, not even in science fiction. Um, so, so far, so good. It, it's interesting. I did a lot of research on cutting-edge marine tech, things that are maybe 10 or 15 years away. And a lot of that appears in the Nautilus as technology that Captain Nemo already discovered 200 years ago. If we find some lost Jules Verne text, and he mentions nuclear submarines, would that just blow the mind of everyone in the world? <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually would not be surprised. Uh, he was ahead of his time in so many ways and predicted so much that we take for granted today um, that I'm not sure I'd put any limits on his imagination. I, no. I just hope a daughter of the deep uh, does him justice. Now, speaking of nitpicking, it just occurred to me, you were obviously a fan of, of Jules Verne growing up. How many arguments did you have with your classmates about 20,000 leagues that it is distance and not depth? Come on, people. <laughs> you know, I, I was late coming to that, that realization that when he's <laughs> talking about 20,000 leagues, yes, he's not talking about, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it really is not depth because then he would be, like past the moon. Uh, that's how deep we'd be talking about. <laughs> right. It's how far he went around the world. So, yes. So, Daughter of the Deep is uh, the new book. You've always got something going on. What's uh, what's up next for you? 
Well, the next book is going to be back in Percy Jackson's world, but it's going to be featuring Nico D'Angelo, the son of Hades, who is one of the fans' favorites. Yeah. And that's the first time I'm going to be co-authoring a book uh, with Marco Shiro, who is a wonderful writer. So it'll be really fascinating to go back into Percy's world, but do it with a, a team approach. And I'm looking forward to that. It's been really fun so far. We'll see. Now come back with that book, and we can get you all the uh, the three timers club swag. Oh, five times you get the the t shirt, the mug, and the hat. So you you know you want to do that. Okay. Oh, that's, that, yeah, okay, you got me. That's a good incentive. <laughs> uh, Daughter of the Deep is now available wherever books are sold. The author is my guest, uh, Rick Riordan. This is always fun. Please come back and uh, appreciate you being here today. Thanks so much, Ryan. the big wake-up call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time to get to my next guest, who is the number one best-selling author of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The fifth and final installment of the Trials of Apollo series is out now. It's called Book 5, The Tower of Nero, and we're going to chat with Rick Riordan. And uh, Rick, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning, Ryan. Thank you. Good to be here. How are you? How are things going where you are? Oh, not too bad. You know, I'm I'm one of the lucky people. I work from home anyway, so uh, my 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 schedule wasn't disrupted very much. So I, I count my blessings. I've been doing uh, the radio show here in a spare bedroom for the past six months, and you kind of get used to it, but it's still very odd that uh, my commute is from one bedroom to another. Yes, I hear that. Okay, so for our listeners who might not know, can you give us a quick overview of, of The Trials of Apollo? And I know that might be tough to condense four previous books into like 60 seconds, but, but just basically what the, what the series is about. Sure. Well, we're set in Percy Jackson's world, which started way back with the lightning thief. And so we're dealing with demigods of the modern world running around America, dealing with uh, Greek gods and monsters and running on quests and trying to save the world. In Apollo's series, The Trials of Apollo, our main character is actually the god, Apollo, who has been punished by his dad, sent down to the earth, grounded, basically, turned into a hapless mortal teen with no powers, and he has to do these quests to prove that he's worthy of becoming a god again. And this, the final book, is when we find out, does he succeed? Has he learned anything from being a human or not? I love the word hapless so much, by the way, so I'm happy that you used it right there because it does. It, it creates such an image. So in this one, are you picking up immediately after the events of the last book? Uh, yes, it really is right away. Um, this this is a very compressed time frame. Uh, unlike, say, the Percy Jackson series, which is one book a year, the whole series here takes place in, I think, about six months. So it is a pretty quick pace. When you're starting a new series, you start the first book here, do you know then the complete story? Do you know, all right, I've got enough for five books here, or does the story just kind of keep evolving as you're writing? Uh, Well, to a certain extent, both things are true. Uh, With Percy Jackson's World, I have done now three five-book series. I I tend to like that length of a series because it gives a nice story arc. That, that goes from beginning, middle, and end, and, and it gives me enough time to develop the characters. Uh, after 15 books, you know, I, I think I do have 
the general idea of how to do the series down. However, as I'm writing, things always crop up. The details from each chapter, the conversations between the characters, all of that happens organically. So I hope that that, that allows me to have a mixture of a story that's both well-crafted, but also feels fresh and like it's happening immediately right now. So do you have, like, you will create a couple lines of dialogue and that gives you an idea or the characters, like, lead you in a direction you didn't expect to go? That very often happens, yes. They will uh, start to say a line, for instance, I'll write it down, and then I'll realize, no, Apollo would never say it that way. He would probably say it this way. So, uh, yeah, some characters are, are more headstrong than others. Uh, and I try to be, um, you know, true to their voices and, and to their characters when I'm writing about them. It's always a challenge, but it's fun. If you had to pick a favorite genre of, of mythology, would you be able to, Greek, Roman, Norse, or is it like, uh, you know, they're all your children? <laughs> well, it is true that I, I love them all. Um, I, I do have a special fondness for Norse mythology simply because I think that's the first mythology that really ignited my passion for reading when I myself was in middle school. Uh, I love Thor and Loki and Odin and those gang. They're just, it's just really uh, different enough uh, to make them interesting, but also very relatable. It was fun having a conversation, and I think my son was in middle school when the original uh, Avengers came out and having the discussion, no, Thor and Loki were not created for, for this motion picture. Yes, I know. Yeah, I've had that conversation, too. You know, but uh, I also grew up with the Thor comic books, so sure. that's fine. I, I can roll with it, you know. <laughs> it, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly Greek, myth- I mean, uh, Norse mythology, but it's, it's fun in its own right as well. Do you think, like, thousands of years from now, future citizens of Earth will find some of our works and then, like, oh, well, here's an example of, uh, of American mythology? It's kind of scary to think what might be left over uh, a thousand years from now and what people will think of us. Uh, and the sort of, mis- I mean, we, you know, we have enough misconceptions among ourselves right now. I mean, thinking about a thousand years from now, uh, who knows <laughs> what, what they'll think that uh, we thought were important, you know, who our quote-unquote gods were, uh, yeah. and, and what those, you know, g- gosh, who knows. I just, you know, I don't know how much, uh, you know, online stuff is going to survive, but if people are able to tap into that, they're just going to, wow, these people just argued over everything. I think that would be the impression of, uh, of our civilization. <laughs> well, I think that's true, and if there's, if there's one constant for the human experience, I think that's safe to say that's been <laughs> with us always and probably always will be. Now, I was reading uh, you have a new imprint where you're uh, trying to uh, feature new talent. How does that work? Yeah, well, I, I love mythology, as we've been talking about it, but uh, a lot of times the, the readers will come to me and say, well, Rick, you know, you've done Greek and Roman, you've done Norse, what about Chinese mythology, or what about West African mythology? And I agree that there yeah. are a lot of wonderful stories from world mythology to be told. The, the problem is that I, I'm not an expert on those mythologies, and I didn't grow up with them the, the way I did with Norse and Greek and Roman and even Egyptian. So I decided it would probably be better if I found people who did know these stories, who grew up with them, who knew the cultures, who were part of those stories, and who could do a better job, a more authentic job, telling them. So rather than me trying to write every mythology in the world, uh, I'm promoting other writers uh, talking about the myths and stories of their own cultures. 
And just I, I have the fun job of being the cheerleader of saying, well, if you like Percy Jackson for Greek mythology, you're probably going to love this other writer who's writing about West African mythology. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. The response has been fantastic. And the success of the imprint uh, really has been beyond my expectations. It's been great. Had you initially attempted to write in some of those areas and just kind of realized I'm kind of out of my element here? This is not my, my area of uh, mythological expertise? Uh, not not really seriously, but uh, as soon as I started putting some some thought to it and, okay, how would I do that, uh, that's when I realized, yeah, no, I probably wouldn't. It would be better to find somebody else to write them who knew them better than I did. Oftentimes we'll have an author, we'll have a novelist on the show, and we're chatting about the book that was just released, but they've already turned in the next one, and they're halfway through the third. Do, do, and it's kind of hard, like, oh, I have, to, I have to reread this book to talk about it. Do you work like that? Do you have something new ready to go after this one? Boy, I sure wish I did. No. <laughs> uh, in, in, my, in my case, especially the last few years, I have been uh, on a pretty fast schedule, so uh, I am still racing to finish one book while I'm I'm talking about the one I, I finished, say, six months ago. So the good news is I'm still fairly fresh on the Tower of Nero. I remember it. Uh, yes, I am working on other things, and I have uh, several different manuscripts for other projects in process, uh, but nothing finished in, in the can, as they say, ready to go. How are, are, are authors like you so much more productive than, say, you know, bands or, 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 or singers? You know, you're lucky if you get an album every three or four years. How, how do you guys, like, put one out every single year? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, talk about music because I, I, I'm not an expert on the creative process there. And everybody is different when it comes to creating things. Sometimes things have to gestate for a while and stew before they're ready to come out. That's with books, too. There are a lot of great writers that don't do a book a year. They do one every four or five years. And that's just how they do it. Um, for me, I think there's an expectation from my readers being uh, mostly young kids. They really want the next book. A year for them is a very long time. Sure. So it, I do feel sort of a responsibility to kind of be regularly giving them installments, especially when I write series. They, they, they want that next book to come out quickly. And that, that's a great motivator to know there's people that are anxious to read it. And the final book in the Trials of Apollo series, it is out now. It's The Tower of Nero, available wherever you buy your books. Of course, uh, by my guest, Rick Riordan. And Rick, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Appreciate you calling in. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. 